Hey friends, welcome back to Anti-Visions. Well, like I said last time, I am going to dig into a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, The Fight for a Human Future at the New Frontier of Power by Shoshana Zuboff. As I was talking about in my last podcast, that it's so easy to get caught up in the details and the minutiae of the day-to-day culture wars and political you know, events that happen every two days and all the COVID crisis and all of the things that are actually very, very important. But what I'm most concerned about and the reason why I even started this show was to look at what are the undergirding driving ideologies and paradigms that are kind of the invisible forces behind what's actually happening. And so I really think that it would be good to dig into some of the some of the books that I've really spent a lot of time on. This one I've read several times. It's a big old honker. It's like 690 some odd pages, tons of uh, footnotes and, and references. And it's really like a table of contents, a seminal work that she produced with the intention that others would take it and dig deeper and really go into it. So I'm going to introduce this concept because I believe it's extremely important in understanding the world around us and why the things that are happening are happening. So you might have heard of a movie or documentary called The Social Dilemma that came out maybe a couple years ago on Netflix. Uh, it's, it's a really amazing documentary. And Shoshana is actually just briefly in that documentary. I highly recommend going and watching it. I think you can get it outside of Netflix now, um, but it's it's worth the rent. It's worth watching it. It's worth worth watching it with your kids. Um, and and I'm, you know, it's it. If you go and watch it, don't think that hey, this explains surveillance capitalism. So I'm just bringing it up to make a point. But I also want to make a point that it's only scratches the surface. It's only the tip of the iceberg. And honestly, I don't even know where the 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 guys who produced it where they where they're really going with it and where they really land. I, you know, I'm I'm somewhat skeptical, but overall, it is really well done. And in that do- documentary, if you watch it, you might think, "Oh man." We're screwed. As a matter of fact, I'm just going to play a little clip from the trailer for it. When you go to Google and type in climate change is, you're going to see different results depending on where you live and the particular things that Google knows about your interests. That's not by accident. That's a design technique. What I want people to know is that everything they're doing online is being watched, is being tracked. Every single action you take is carefully monitored and recorded. A lot of people think Google's just a search box and Facebook's just a place to see what my friends are doing. What they don't realize is there's entire teams of engineers whose job is to use your psychology against you. And I played that particular clip because I feel like it at least touches on the really important aspect of Shoshana's book, which is about data harvesting, which I will explain in a very unboring way. But um, I think when you're watching the the documentary, it's, there are just so many ideas and, and 
I really think that the whole idea of data harvesting that was just hit on just a moment ago, that idea of all of the information about you being gathered and then used to basically manipulate you or being used against you, um, that is, that's just the tip of the iceberg of Shoshana's work. And that very idea, I think, in the documentary, there's so many other ideas that I think it just it just kind of gets lost in those ideas. But it's okay because that probably isn't the purpose, is to go as deep as her book. So anyway, I'm just going to dig in a little bit just to share what is surveillance capitalism. And this is just a brief, there's so many things that could be said, but I'm going to try to be brief and a little bit about why would it even matter for you to even think about so in, in the early 2000s, Google discovered, and I'm not trying to pick on Google, but really they, these guys are the godfather in, in technology-wise of surveillance c- capitalism. So in the early 2000s, Google discovered the power of data harvesting in order to generate, and so data harvesting would be just the idea of collecting as much possible information about the user, which they are very well capable of doing. And and also, don't mistake this talk for um, you know a warning about privacy. And, you know, and even though there's a place for privacy and the concerns about hacking and people, you know, hacking into information, there is way more at stake than than just privacy. So I'm I'm not even I don't even emphasize that at all. But basically, they discovered the power of data harvesting, and in order to generate a smarter search engine, they Initially, they would just keep all of the data about users, including what seemed to be excess and otherwise useless information. However, it turned out that shoving these bits and fragments of data into a gargantuan database turned out to be a brilliant idea, especially once you unleash powerful algorithms to churn through the information, also known as data mining. This strategy eventually led to capabilities beyond Google's wildest dreams. Imagine all of the residual data collected about your life that can be stored digitally. Every financial transaction tells where you were and what you were doing. For example, you were shopping, you were eating out, you were on vacation, and like I said, it knows exactly when you were on vacation, Uh, it knows if you know, what restaurant you're eating at, what kind of food, and also, by virtue of that, all the people that are around you. Um, in every song, it knows every song you've listened to online. Think about all the streaming, whether it's on YouTube or Spotify, you know, all the services that are out there, Apple Music, every movie that you've streamed, every social media post, every email that you've typed, unless you have like Proton Mail or something, but most likely you use Gmail or one of these cloud services where they actually scan the content of your email. Then imagine that a really smart enough investigator, and that's just a few pieces. I mean, there's so much about us that's collected digitally that we give over on purpose. I mean, all the postings on Facebook and pictures of yourself and everything. So imagine then that a really smart enough investigator to piece together the story of your life so cohesively that it would yield a history that far exceeds that which you're even capable of remembering. And he could even make astute observations about your psychological patterns, your strengths and weaknesses, etc. Well, it turns out there, that there are indeed investigators that can do just that. 
These are highly complex and powerful computing systems that operate with ever-increasingly intelligent algorithms capable of reconstructing your life and using that information to make predictions about you. There was a particular point in time that Google can pinpoint, they can actually pinpoint this time, Zuboff talks about in her book, when they actually discovered the power of this behavioral data surplus. Because at first it was just kind of surplus data. It was, it was left over. But when they made this discovery, they initially they realized that they could use it for precision and advertising. Because if you can basically know so much about someone's life, then you can make a prediction about you know, most likely what they'll want to buy and when they'll buy it. When are they, when's the most optimal moment? And so they realized, wow, we could use this for really precise advertising. So they changed their advertising model and gone were the days when a company would pay for shotgun style advertising. Google could say, hey, look, you just give us the money. We'll take care of it. Like, you don't tell us who you want to reach or, you know, how much time you want to spend or, you know, what, which, you know, what time of the day or which particular demographics you want to. No, Google will decide all of that. And then using the, those algorithms, Google knew exactly who to put which advertising in front of. And they knew the optimal time to place that advertising in front of those particular people. And it was corporate America's dream come true. I mean, advertising had always been a worthy investment, but Google caused those who could pay to play to get massive returns on the massive amounts of money they were spending anyway on advertising. However, it didn't take long to realize that this behavioral data was not just good for making predictions so as to maximize advertising profit. But the question arose, what if this knowledge of the consumer could be used to actually modify their behavior, unbeknownst to the consumer, of course, so that they could be manipulated or, you know, a better word is nudged to be an even more devoted or likely consumer? So at this point, one might say, oh, I see. I get it. I, I always thought that I was Google's customer. I always, I always did wonder how they could offer me all of those powerful tools for free, like Gmail and, of course, their amazing search engine, uh, Google Drive, Sheets, uh, YouTube, Google Maps, all these amazing services that I don't have to pay for. Okay, I get it. I'm not the customer. I'm the product. But that's not accurate either, okay? We... The people, the supposed consumer, are not the consumer and we're not the product either. Rather, we are actually the free, and, and I mean free because they're not paying us a dime, but we are the free raw material from which they extract their product. And their product that they're extracting from us is our human experience. And I'm not going to be able to go in depth on that in this particular episode because I'm just kind of explaining the, you know, what is it, but I will get into that a little bit more to explain it more. So in her book, Shoshana Zuboff says, surveillance capitalism, I quote, surveillance capitalism unilaterally claims human experience as free raw material for translation into behavioral 
data. Although some of these data are applied to product or service improvement, the rest are declared as proprietary behavioral surplus fed into advanced manufacturing processes known as machine intelligence and fabricated into prediction products that anticipate what you will do now, soon, and later. Finally, these prediction products are traded in a new kind of marketplace for behavioral predictions that I call behavioral futures markets. Surveillance capitalists have grown immensely wealthy from these trading operations, for many companies are eager to lay bets on our future behavior. And that's from page 8. Zuboff also explains that the services of companies like Google and Facebook are merely the hooks that lure users into their extractive operations in which our personal experiences are scraped and packaged as the means to others' ends. Now, let me give you a little mental image for this because what I always think of is the movie The Matrix. And I'm talking about the original Matrix that came out in, I think, 1999. And in that movie, if you haven't seen it, man, you you really need to watch it. It's really relevant. They actually recently came out with a fourth one. uh, And I I liked it. It was called Resurrections. But the, the first one was brilliant. And in this movie, the people like Neo, who's the main character, discover that, you know, they live in a world that's much like the world that we live in today. And then discover, and there aren't many that discover this, that it's actually a computer simulated world, that it's not the real world, that they're actually hooked up to this neural network And everything they're perceiving and experiencing, I mean, it seems very real, and it is real life to them, but their bodies are actually in pods, like in these in these individual pods that are like like liquefied, and then they're hooked up with these electrodes. So they are real human beings, but they're in these pods with these electronic things hooked into them, so that their brains are connected to this, you know, to this uh, neural network. And, and so they're basically living in virtual reality. They don't know it. So they've, they've never actually used their arms, their legs, their eyes, nothing. Their bodies are really an atrophy, but they're, they're alive because mentally they're experiencing life and still they're fed intravenously, so they're kept alive. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to play a clip where Morpheus quickly explains to Neo how they got to where they are, just basically the quick history of it. And it's relevant to our discussion about surveillance capitalism. But what we know for certain is that at some point in the early 21st century, all of mankind was united in celebration. We marveled at our own magnificence as we gave birth to AI. AI? You mean artificial intelligence? A singular consciousness that spawned an entire race of machines. We don't know who struck first, us or them, but we know that it was us that scorched the sky. At the time, they were dependent on solar power, and it was believed that they would be unable to survive without an energy source as abundant as the sun. Throughout human history, we have been dependent on machines to survive. Fate, it seems 
is not without a sense of irony. Okay, so then Morpheus goes on to explain to Neo how the the AI machine world that was created, uh, basically because they no longer had an energy source from the sun because the human beings had scorched the sky, uh, they they learned that they could take human beings and use them as an energy source because of how many BTUs each human being actually produces. And so what they did is created these massive fields where human beings weren't born, they're just grown, and they live in these pods. And by them being hooked up to this virtual reality, of course, psychologically, it keeps them alive, they're intravenously fed, and it generates... Uh, electricity it generates energy and it's enough energy but they have to have a large population uh but it generates enough energy for then the the machine world to exist and to run and so that's the parallel that i see here is that it, obviously it's not as extreme um, but the parallel would be that human experience is being extracted from from people it's being extracted from those that use the service and the people aren't the product they're not the consumer but they're being they're being used for their experiences and that's something that i'll have to explain more in, in future podcasts but um essentially there, there, there's a more sinister and dangerous dilemma for humanity than just capitalists who have gone rogue. It's not capitalism as we knew it. These, these are extremely wealthy people that are getting even richer, and I don't think any of them have some grand scheme. Most people, they're just getting rich and getting richer. But our, our more sinister, one of the more sinister dangers is AI. And ironically, you know, that's what's happening in the Matrix. That's not why I chose that scene. But then I realized, oh, yeah, it was AI. But that is a dangerous enemy as well, because, um, you know, of course, the dystopian perspective is, is a lot like the Terminator, you know, that once AI becomes self-aware, the human race will face its end. And that's quite plausible or like elon musk the owner of tesla he believes that ai would be the end of humanity because we'd just be so inferior not even necessarily that it would decide to destroy us even though it could very well decide you know the smartest most most ethical best thing to do would be to annihilate the human race which would be kind of the terminator idea but uh, it it could just simply be that we're more like, you know, cats or pets or, you know, we're just so inferior that we're not even thought of by artificial intelligence. Either way, it's the end of humanity as we know it. Uh, and I know that's all speculation as well. But the, the really important thing is to understand that the rest, other than uh, Elon Musk, which he's his own story, and I've got to get into that too because there's... <laughs> some interesting developments with Neuralink and all that stuff. Um, but the rest of the big tech gurus, you know, whether you're talking about Jack Dorsey, who's moved on into blockchain stuff, or you're talking about Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos with Amazon or, you know, Schmidt or Page or Sergey Brin from Google or Ray Kurzweil, or it doesn't matter. Or you're talking about the World Economic Forum card, card holders, who fill our governments and, of course, the non-governmental organization, the WEF, that wants the global reset, and just global elitists in general, they can't wait for the age of AI. 
and it's not just an idea. No, not the age of Ultron. I know that's that's only Disney, right? Um, I'm talking about the age of of AI. But that's another eerie picture there is Ultron. You know, you can go chew on that one on your own as far as what, what the ramifications are for that. But but really, they don't just have a desire for this. They back that desire not just by emotion, but by a reinvestment of billions of dollars back into AI technology. Billions. China is has in it, just that country alone has spent, I want to say, more than a decade investing massive amounts of money to be the forerunner of artificial intelligence. OK, but so much of the money that Google, Facebook, Amazon, you name it, the big guys, Microsoft, so much of the money that they invest in futurist technology is actually generated by the surveillance capitalism tactics that Zuboff's book is all about. Now, you might think, well, maybe AI isn't the demise of humanity, but either way, they're using these tactics to generate massive amounts of money and then reinvest it in something that could very well be our demise. But if it's not artificial intelligence, there are other things that will definitely be the demise of our civilization if this problem doesn't get diagnosed and dealt with very quickly. And, you know... Zuboff doesn't, she doesn't tread on the AI thing. I'm not trying to put words in her mouth. She doesn't talk about the singularity or the transhumanism ground that I'm talking about. Uh, but I believe that that's where surveillance capitalism is taking us. And in future episodes, I will give reasons why I believe that a transhumanist world is a terrible idea. But in the meantime, I want to use her research, Zuboff's research to show the catastrophic avalanche forming under our feet as the result of surveillance capitalism. I mean, it's taken human history a very long time to crawl out of the social dungeons in, into what we could term freedom. Freedom is a recent thing in human history. And until America became a sovereign and freestanding republic, most people up until that point had either been slaves or serfs. It's not a perfect history. But the radical ideals of the Christian faith eventually pulled society out of the world of monarchs and tyrants. Uh, just a little commercial. If, if you like that idea, there's a book by Tom Holland, the historian, not Spider-Man, called Dominion. He's not a Christian, but he argues that he argues the point that I just made, basically that Western civilization and where we are today is the result of the radical Christian revolution. Okay, commercial over. So back to what I was saying. The conviction that human beings have individual liberties as self-evident truths turned Western civilization on its head. However, the tactics of today's surveillance capitalists are ushering in a new world order where the individual no longer has a voice, where the government may not be questioned, a world where the elite own everything and the everyday man is no more than a serf. It's a neo-feudalism that we are facing. But make no mistake, most of these businesses have the best of intentions. Second only, of course, to their profit margin. Yet we know that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. And in the same way that the economist F.A. Hayek once called socialism the road to serfdom, I believe we can today equally declare 
that surveillance capitalism has placed us on the same road and is more likely to get us there than Marxism could ever dream of. In her book, Zuboff says, surveillance capitalism must be reckoned as a profoundly anti-democratic social force. Surveillance capitalism's anti-democratic and anti-egalitarian juggernaut is best described, hang on, I'm just going to press pause, just the anti-democratic, um, anti-egalitarian, which, which she's saying egalitarian would just be equality, so anti-equal society juggernaut, is best described as a market-driven coup from above. It is not a coup d'etat in the classic sense, but rather a coup de gens, an overthrow of the people concealed as the technological Trojan horse that is Big Other. On the strength of its annexation of human experience, this coup achieves exclusive concentrations of knowledge and power that sustain privileged influence over the division of learning in society. It is a form of tyranny that feeds on people, but is not of the people. In a surreal paradox, this coup is celebrated as personalization, although it defiles, ignores, overrides, and displaces everything about you and me that is personal. The tragedy is that we are addicted to our own demise. Because although we owe nothing to the surveillance capitalisms, we've become addicted to their services. As Zuboff says on page 11, we are in a Faustian compact because it's nearly impossible to tear ourselves away despite the fact that what we must give in return will destroy life as we've known it. Surveillance capitalism commandeered the wonders of the digital world to meet our needs for effective life, she says, promising the magic of unlimited information and a thousand ways to anticipate our needs and ease the complexities of our harried lives. We welcomed it into our hearts and homes with our own rituals of hospitality. Thanks to ca surveillance capitalism, the resources for effective life that we seek in the digital realm now come unencumbered with a new breed of menace. Under this new regime, the precise moment at which our needs are met is also the precise moment at which our lives are plundered for behavioral data and all for the sake of others' gain. So I'm just going to wrap it up here and do, I don't know, a couple more episodes at least where I unpack a few of the other ideas in surveillance capitalism. Like I said, it's a huge work and there's no way I can cover everything just giving a synopsis. But another quick reason that she mentions several times in her book is um, is just the need to understand it so that you can diagnose it. And the, that's something that we should understand. On page 14, she even had this quote that's you know really stood out to me because last time I read it, I don't think the pandemic had started yet, but it says on page 14, every vaccine begins in careful knowledge of the enemy disease. And that's something we can understand, right? If you're going to have an effective vaccine, you have to know what the disease is. If you don't know what's making you sick, 
There's no way, without defining the enemy, there's no way you can defeat it. And so it's essential to actually understand what's going on and to be able to look at the world around us and see... You know, I get it. That seems like a red or a blue, you know, Republican or Democrat uh, debate, or it seems like just another debate about censorship or another debate about how we're going to handle funding for voting or it could be for immigration or all these all these things. If, if we can't discover what's really driving these forces that are at work and we can't identify the enemy, then we can't solve the problem. You can think you can patch it up with the next election cycle, or the, which is important, you know, or the next person who's going to take office, or the, the next important initiative that needs to be pushed out, or the next thing that needs to be pushed against in the school board meetings, which is important again. But if we don't know what the real enemy is, then we're just going to tread on a hamster mill until these guys totally take over. So with that exciting and very positive note, I leave you with that and look forward to the next talk on Anti-Vision. See you guys. Mm-hmm.